0: Good morning Door of Hope Northeast. This is Cameron and we are here for another one of our devotionals through the Gospel of John. This morning we are finishing up our time in chapters 18 and 19 and I'm going to be discussing briefly uh, Jesus's crucifixion and death in particular. Chapter 19 verse 16b through verse 30. So I'll start just by reading the text. It says, So they took Jesus, And he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write, the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, "What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit so obviously the the cross and the death of Jesus is an event that's recorded in all four of the gospels um, but even still each of the gospel writers each of the four um, in keeping with the, the specific themes that they're they're trying to build out as they put forward their their picture of Jesus um, they each emphasize different elements and so uh, we've we, of course, believe that all those different emphases are harmonious and work together uh, to create a, a fuller and more complete picture for us. Um, it's, it's not that they stand in tense contradiction with one another, but John chooses to to include and to leave out certain details from his telling of, of the crucifixion that, that the others don't. And so we may highlight some of those. Um, but let's just let's just jump in here for a moment first. Um, we'll look at the first few verses that highlight just the act of the crucifixion itself and, and Jesus's charge. Um, so, as we've mentioned before, um, for for many chapters now, the the religious leaders of, of Israel have been scheming to kill Jesus, and and finally here in these chapters, it's it's the decision is final. It's happened, and he's being sent to the cross itself for execution. Um, That first line there, so they took Jesus, Um, just makes me think of of the power of that that word took. They took (laughs) the Son of God, the Son of Man, the the Messiah into their custody, into their hands um, as a criminal for execution. Jesus was bearing his own cross, we're told, that the criminals were, were, they were made to carry their crosses on the way to their execution. And, and Rome had thought deeply and, and worked out over time every element of the crucifixion process to, to maximize both pain and suffering and humiliation. Um, and so this is one of those parts, Jesus probably carrying the, the wide cross beam um, as he's having to carry it out to his site of execution. Um, and and even the mention of of the place, it, it's this place that we we understand is outside the city, outside the walls, and there is there is significance here. Um, this this idea, if you read through your Old Testament, the idea of being put outside the camp, outside the walls, outside the city, is is a significant judgment from God uh, in the Old Testament. In fact, in the New Testament jesus when he he talks about uh hell even he describes it as as this trash dump outside the city and, um even when we look look ahead to revelation um twenty one we see the picture of the new heavens and the new earth um there's just this idea of, of of the city and being welcomed into the city contrasted with the lake of fire that's that's kept outside um and so there's there's real significance to this and uh, but by, by Jesus being crucified up on this tree outside of the city it's it's picking up many of these themes and kind of showing Jesus as as the curse bearer he's the one bearing the curses he's the one in some sense bearing uh, hell itself um, in his crucifixion and this is of course right as as hopefully you understand one of the categories of, of Jesus' death on the cross as being our substitute, being the one who takes what we've deserved um, and taking it on and into himself, that he might be able to offer us forgiveness and freedom, but offer it justly because because the price has been paid. Um, of, of course, we get mentioned here that, that Jesus is crucified uh, between two other criminals. Luke takes the time to point out that um, one of these criminals repented uh, as they were discussing up on the cross in their agonies. And Jesus offers forgiveness and grace and the promise that they are going to be together in paradise very soon. And so just another picture, even in the midst of Jesus actively being tortured on the cross, extending grace and forgiveness to a criminal, which is the whole point of the cross. So It's very beautiful. John doesn't mention that, but Luke did, and, and I will here. Uh, but moving on, I want to just mention the, the, the sign that's put that, that has the charge. This was a, a common thing for, for the, the crime to be listed above the person hanging on the cross. And here it just read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, which was almost an oxymoron. I mean, Nazareth had such a, such a minimal reputation, this podunk town. To say that the king was from Nazareth uh, was sort of a joke. And perhaps Pilate is being um, just kind of cruel and vindictive and insulting to the Jews here um, By by insisting on this title Of course the chief priests push back they say don't write that say this man claimed to be the king of the Jews But Pilate wouldn't budge and the charge is written in three languages. It says uh, Aramaic Latin and in Greek Um, Commentator D.A. Carson says the reason for such linguistic enthusiasm is obvious the Romans had a vested interest in publicizing the nature of the crime that resulted in such punishment as a warning to every segment of the populace. So to make sure everyone knew, you don't make these kinds of claims, you don't challenge Caesar's authority, you you know, this and that. But also it's possible that... um, this is just another providential working of God um, getting, getting the, lang- the message, the true message that Jesus is the king of the Jews and of the whole world uh, in all the dominant languages of the day uh, as this powerful declaration is also possible. Whatever the case, Jesus was the true king of the Jews indeed, hoisted up for his coronation on, on a torture device. So let's keep reading. Verses 23 and 24 highlight this idea of fulfillment. So it says, when the soldiers crucified him, they took his garments, uh, divided them up, and we're, we're told uh, at the end, of, end here that this was to fulfill the scripture that says, they divided my garments among them for my clothing, they cast lots. Um, so we see the quotation and the fulfillment of Psalm 22, 18, um, which again, they divided my garments among them for my clothing, they cast lots and oftentimes when when a biblical writer quotes a particular passage they, they they of course want you to look at that specific verse that's quoted but they want you to they want to expand your mind usually to think through the whole unit or the whole book or the whole chapter or the whole whatever in this case all of psalm 22 is really important background it's that'd be worth reading if you're interested and have time it's a psalm of lament as, as david is feeling forsaken by God, because of the hardship that's that's uh, fallen upon him, and he's trying to muster up hope, and he's even coming back to declaring his trust in God. It's it's a beautiful psalm that really kind of prefigures the gospel, and it's uh, no coincidence that that John uh, John sees the connection here. So, but we see is that this the cross is not this one-off thing, this random thing that's happening, but uh, John is pointing our attention back to. This is in fulfillment of Scripture. God's plan is still at work here. And even though the, the disciples who knew what was happening, some of them watching from a distance would have been horrified and, and would have thought that all is lost, um, it was not the case. The plan was proceeding as, as God and as Jesus himself had intended uh, in fulfillment of Scripture. But as we go on, we see... Uh, this, this other really beautiful little interaction here in verses 25 through 27, where um, we see that there are these uh, these women that were standing by the cross of Jesus. And um, the, the different Gospels kind of make it a little bit hazy of exactly who was a part of this group. But here we see at least there were these several women, um, including Jesus' mother, Mary. And amidst his suffering, when Jesus saw his mom, he said to her, woman behold your son pointing to the disciple whom Jesus loved which most believe is John the writer of this gospel and then he said to John behold your mother and and so r- remember now Jesus we've just been reminded that his robes are taken he's probably absolutely naked which was once again part of the humiliation of the cross and he's seen by his mother here and he's in deep pain but even still He commends to Mary, John, you can trust John. This is your son. He's going to care for you. And he commends to, to John, Mary, like take care of her in my stead. And we're told that John did care for her from here on out. And so I just think it's worth noting amidst like bearing the punishment of, of the sin of all of humanity in excruciating physical torture, embarrassment, humiliation, his loving concern for his mother and his intimate trust of John are on display here. And he's taking this very personal moment to make sure that his family is cared for uh, by entrusting his mother to his beloved disciple. And just, wow, what a beautiful personal glimpse into Jesus's heart. And this lends context for the intimacy and authority that we find in, in John's letters as well. Um, it's, as we get back to 1 John at some point as a community, just keep scenes like this in your mind. The one whom Jesus trusted uh, with, with the care of his own mother is the one who's later going to be writing uh, to, to re-strengthen and, and, and recommit these Christian communities back to the true gospel that John was there to witness. It's, it's really powerful. It's awesome. And then finally, we the last three verses, 28 through 30, um, talk about the finished work. And so it says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture once again, I thirst. And they took the sour wine, they gave it to him, and we're told when Jesus finally received that wine, he said, it is finished. And then the, the line says, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And so, once again, we get very clear indication that Jesus knew what he was doing on the cross. Again, he was no merely passive victim here. He was the active participant. He knew what the mission was, and he knew when it had been completed. And at this point now, he knew that he had accomplished what he set out to. The thing that just before in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was, he was excruciating over and, and wrestling with. He, he had now been faithful in completing his work on the cross here we get another reference to uh, psalm 669 this time verse 21 probably is what is what's being referenced it says they gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink and this is another psalm of david once again lamenting in the midst of suffering and opposition but but trusting ultimately that god is going to come through and that god is going to remain faithful uh, very much prefiguring what Jesus is going through here. And then Jesus declares here with finality, it is finished. So he, in his divine wisdom, knows that what he set out to do on the cross is now complete. And it is finished. It's just loaded with with meaning. And um, this is really interesting. Like the cross is something that that when we look at it, um, even in John here, he doesn't give a ton of explanation of what's happening on the cross in terms of theological significance. It's it's almost like looking at you know one of these plants that you know maybe has a modest uh, a, a modest view when you look at it at the surface, but if you could see in cross section the the root system, this has this dramatically deep root system that's below the surface that you can't see. That's kind of what's going on with the cross. Like we know that Jesus was killed. We know that he suffered. We can, we can see and state and recount the physical facts of it. Um, but the theological significance is something that's worked out all over the entire Bible, uh, from page one to the end. And so we, we end up, uh, having to do some extra work to figure out, okay, what was finished? What happened here? And we could say a ton, but, uh, we'll we'll say a few things. Like, first of all, he's, he's wrapping up the major themes of struggle throughout the whole bible he's he's finishing in some sense all these loose hanging threads like the 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 snake crusher who's gonna uh, come and finally defeat that great enemy of god that came all the way back in genesis 3 is happening here jesus is crushing the snake's head by the cross he is redeeming and rescuing his sin enslaved people like a new moses Uh, He is asserting his good kingship as he's hoisted up on this cross. It's not a throne as we might think of it, but he's carrying a crown on his head. He has the title uh, nailed above him as king. And little did they know that this actually is his coronation. He's defeating the powers and the principalities of darkness. He's defeating the enemies of God. He's asserting victory over them. He's receiving our vicarious judgment. For, for our sin, he's serving as, as our substitute, receiving the penalty, the curses that we mentioned before, uh, that, that justly attribute rebellion against God. And he's recapitulating the stories of Adam and Israel. He's showing himself to be the true man, the faithful man, the one man who will not break covenant with God. Uh, he's the new Adam and he's the new Israel as well in the same way. He's the true and the better. And we could go on and on and on, but uh, there's so many beautiful and wonderful and amazing and mysterious aspects to what theologians call the atonement or or the work of Jesus on the cross, what he did to atone for sin in that moment. And we don't have time to unpack really any of them, but we can talk about them and we can mention them. And it's a theme that's going to come up basically every time we open our Bibles at Door of Hope Northeast because it's, it's the center of what we do. And we have to take a moment to realize that all these things we're mentioning are not just abstract truths, but they are for you. If you are a follower of Jesus, these are things that Jesus has done personally for you because of your sin and your separation from God, your rebellion against him, my sin, my rebellion against God. He has gone to the cross and has done all these wonderful things that he might save you. And Remember, it's not you up on the cross. It's not me up on the cross, though. That's what we deserved. He went and he did all the work himself on your behalf and on mine. That though we were far from God, he chose to come and to save. And this work that he finished was the means by which he did it. And so every time we return to the cross, we think about it, we, we pray through it, we reflect on it. May that be at the forefront of our minds, not as abstract truth, but as personal truth, done for you and for me. Praise God. So Jesus, at this point, realizes all these things and more that that the cross was meant to accomplish. It had accomplished. It is finished. He's done. The work has been complete. And so Jesus is now free to give up his spirit, perhaps emphasizing once again his own agency and the intentionality of his death. Jesus was, again, not a passive, merely a passive victim here, but he is on a mission. And whenever he knows the mission is complete, then he gives up his spirit and allows himself to succumb to death. And of course, that's not the end of the story. We're going to read on uh, and we're going to read about the resurrection. But this whole package from Jesus's incarnation to his sinless life, to his teaching, to his death, to his resurrection, to his ascension to the throne of God and to his sending of the spirit uh, kind of becomes this key turning point. So that's really the the content of the gospels and and beginning of Acts. It's just this turning point in human history where the world is never the same. The news has since gone out that the king has come and that he has asserted himself over every rival power, that he has done everything to save humanity, that everything that stood between humans and, and God, everything that hindered right relationship has been done away with finally and decisively because of this thing this cross, this work that Jesus has finished. And the world will never be the same. 2,000 years later, the world is not the same. The world is different. The disciples of Jesus are here uh, continuing to to carry on in his name and with his message and with his good news, Um, continuing to invite others that, hey, if you will come and trust Jesus, if you will come and bring your allegiance to him, if you will just simply throw yourself in your weakness at his feet, he will save you too. And you can be brought into his good kingdom and his future hope that one day, that same victory that he achieved, that he experienced in his resurrection uh, following his death, will be extended to us too. And we'll get to live forever with him and his perfectly recreated new heavens and new earth. And not just that, but that that resurrection life begins now. It begins now. We now have the opportunity to live in light of that with fresh power and with fresh hope, uh, with fresh purpose. Um, and we could go on and on and on and on. But there you go. The cross, the death of Jesus, the thing that, that bought for us our salvation and our, our future and our hope. And so the cross of Christ, like many aspects of Christian theology, it's like a sloped pool where there's a a shallow end that's shallow enough for for children to wade in and to understand real and sincere truth about. But there's a deep end, deep deep enough for theologians to spend their entire lives wrestling and wrestling and wrestling through to try to unpack the depth and the riches of it. And so um, if you've never thought deeply about what is the cross? Why did the cross save us? How did that work? What What is going on there? Maybe this would be a reminder to do that, to take up some study, maybe to take some of your extra COVID-19 time and, and to try to think about it, um, or not. At the very least, I hope in, in reading through this in John, you have a fresh appreciation for the love and the mercy and the grace and the sacrifice. That Jesus has made on our behalf because he loves us and because he was not content to uh, be without us and without relationship with us. And so uh, that's it for today. We are going to continue on and finish up chapters uh, 20 and 21 next week in John. And then we will go from there. So I hope you're well and God bless.